people just like you have taken the brave step to do this thing we call work differently. They tell their self-unlimited story to inspire and encourage you. Another story begins now. Today I get to have a joyous time and I mean that in the truest sense of speaking with my good friend Stuart French. Welcome Stuart. Hi Helen, it's lovely to be here with you. Now Stuart is somebody I met just over a decade ago at a professional association meeting that focused on knowledge management. And he's a member of my professional village, a very important one over the years. And one of the things that Stuart and I often love to get to do together and do is muse on things and transfer knowledge from the different experiences we're having. So a conversation like this is like playtime for you and me. Wouldn't you agree, Stuart? Uh, totally. In fact, it already took off before we started recording. So we had to stop ourselves to do this. Indeed. Now, there are some things about your workscape that I think are going to be really interesting to talk about in this recording. And that's why I invited you. And one of them is about this knowledge management work that you do can be a practice for individuals, not organizations, and that there's volunteer work that you do. And I'm not going to say what it is. I'll let you reveal that. But that's something really different from your day job. Yet it's got some blended aspects of what's going on. And with all of that, I know you to be a fount of knowledge. And so that's our theme tonight. So, Stuart, over to you. What would you like to start sharing? A, you're not the first person to call me a font of knowledge. I, I saw a thing the other day about font of knowledge, tap of interesting insight, bottle uh, of trivial facts. I'm not <laughs> sure where I am on that thing, but I, I, I often your water that, theme. Uh, there it is. I often say that it, you, you, know, it, you can't be a plumber without getting a bit of water on you. And I'm really a knowledge plumber. That's my job. I love so, imagery. So I, I do get a lot of knowledge on me. I've had some great conversations, surprising conversations with people over the years because I talk to people like you and I talk to, you know, lots of different people in lots of different places and in different backgrounds and different areas of expertise. And so they're, they're usually surprised that, how do you, I thought you were over there. Why, how do you know about this again? And so I'm very, very blessed to know a little bit about everything. Was it uh, Benjamin Franklin who said, Jack of all trades, master of one. Ooh. And I, I love that. Yeah. I love that idea. We often miss say that. We say Jack of all trades, master of none. Mm. But that's not what he said. He said, okay. Jack of all trades, master of one. In other words, have one thing you're really, really good at and then know a little bit about everything else. So you see the connections and you, I love that idea because that, you know, has benefited me so much in my life because it's not how much I know. It's not like I've got stuff in my meat purse in my head, right? Yes. It's the connections that I draw between them all. And that, as you'll probably hear over the next hour or so, is very fundamental in turning me into a storyteller. So I'm constantly telling stories about things and, and, and using them to yeah. help people see a more connected, non-reductionist view of the world that they live in. And one thing I'm going to call out that you just did then that I also know about you is that when you hear about something, you don't just take it as a given. You will go look for source material and find out where did that come from and who first said it. And even in that, there can be insights. It's like, gosh, somewhere along the time that became something else and people were now using that in a different way than maybe what it was first intended. So it's interesting you say that. So I, I heard a long time ago that a large percentage of alcoholics mm. have a very, very 
strong ability to handle alcohol. Right. And so that that actually lets them drink more of it, but the body, it takes its toll, right? Mm. And, and in the same way, I have an absolutely rotten memory. Okay. And so I've had to sort of manage my personal knowledge all my life or I forget it. Right. If I don't, if I don't collect it somewhere, if I don't link it to another story, if I don't do something with it, it's one in, you know, in one ear out the other. And so uh, for me, knowledge management, which by the way, I didn't discover until later in my life. I, mm. I started off as a, an apprentice computer technician back 30 odd years ago. But I realized when I found it, oh my gosh, I've been doing all these things all my life. I just didn't have a name for them. And I've been told that a lot of people who do master's degrees have the same experience. Right. Oh, I'm now learning the names for the things I've been doing for ages. Yes. And uh, is that, have you had that experience as well? Indeed. And a little bit like you, neither of us went to high school and then went to university. We did other things. And for me, there was an eight-year period before I went and did undergraduate university. And I was then at an age of being 25. So had more life experience, had had eight years in the workforce. So some of the things that I was learning was kind of like, really, why are they teaching this? And I had to kind of stop and think, oh, that's right, because they're expecting this to be an 18 or 17-year-old who's just left high school. And I've already got a level of experience in there. And I remember one of the most valuable lectures that I had in my undergraduate psychology degree was called how to be an intelligent consumer of psychological information and it was brilliant because and we're talking here about circa mid-1990s and so the book had come out men are from Mars women are from Venus so here's a piece of knowledge that's floating around in the world in a book form by a guy called Dr John Gray I think I've got that right and people are generally thinking like I can take that because it's in a book because it was written by a doctor and this lecturer was pulling things out and challenging things and inviting us to think critically, like where did that piece of information come from and who wrote this? And, you know, the fact that this guy's a doctor, he's not actually a doctor in psychology. He's a doctor in something else. And so it really highlighted for me, this theme that I think is very common to you too, that sense of who says so, what was the critical thinking around this just because it's floating around and it's being repeated and it's been put in a form like a book which kind of feels in society well it must be real then like no there's more to actually dive into completely agree so you raise an interesting point i had this amazing chat um you would have loved it actually with a friend of mine who i was working with who left about 12 months ago he's now working as a consultant and I found out to my delight that he's doing a master's degree in philosophy at the mm. moment. So our half hour catch up may or may not have turned into two hours. And sure. It was just wonderful to have somebody to talk to like you at a different level. And so we were having this conversation about uh, his journey on, on learning mm. uh, all these new concepts and trying to nut it together. Yes. And he admitted to me that he's at the point of his journey now where he has become a scientific Calvinist. He no longer believes in free will. Okay. And I was like, that's an awesome place. Don't leave there in a hurry. Fish around. Enjoy the stop, right? You'll learn a lot at that place. And it was really interesting to me because he'd, he'd kind of been nutting through these things and trying to put 
all these ideas he's he'd had as a lay thinker mm. and all of a sudden he was asked to put them down in written form and to yeah. and to do things with them and so he was you know logically adding these things up mm. so therefore i must believe this he said that several times yeah. i must believe this then interesting to hear logic and belief meshing together yeah. in his language was, and was this, that's my feeling about the field of knowledge management and in contrast to say information management and i'd love to hear your thoughts on the two of them is that there's an aspect where of the things that we are knowing the things we've chosen to know the way we come to know them that there's a kind of outside looking in view of well who says that and why do they say that and how am i going to use it and it's more than just a passive uh, content consumption of the way that I I deal with knowledge in my professional life is I just read some articles or something. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people don't realize that when they make statements like that, that they're actually tapping into some pretty deep history there. It was Plato himself that said that knowledge is true belief. Mm. So that's a comment, that's an idea that has just like men are from mars women are from venus has been yep. is memified through yes. our western culture yes and so is knowledge true belief what is belief what is knowledge and mm. how does that change when we understand just a little bit about neuroscience and the yeah. breakthroughs we've had in the last 10 years yeah and you know one of the questions i was challenged with uh in my master's degree which was is knowledge situated in only one brain mm. Can knowledge exist across a community or a society? Yeah. And if you remove certain people from that group, does the knowledge still exist? Can people still do what they could do before mm. while that thinker was there? So these are very deep philosophical well, things. That and then, but some people might listen to think, oh, Helen and Stuart are going off in a philosophical conversation. But I invite them to think that when you're 17, 18 and your workscape is opening and you're thinking there's a field I would like to get into, like maybe it's project management, often these fields have a body of knowledge. And there's yeah. a, a notion that a number of people have come to collectively together. They've sifted through all the possible knowledge that exists put it into some kind of standard and said, the way that you can grow and develop is to acquire that knowledge. And by the way, it's not just, you know, put it in your brain and remember it. It's often tied in like you had the experience of an apprenticeship. It's often tied to learning on the job and learning as you go. So I'm wondering if you might speak to that. What was the journey for you of finishing high school and starting your journey to be a knowledge acquiring, knowledge sharing person? Good, good question. So I loved my apprenticeship. What um, was it in a, a computer IT? So back when I was a young pup, there was yes. no such thing as a computer technician. So you are a radio technician and you okay. specialized in computers. So I think right. I pulled a CB apart once, but that's the extent of my knowledge of radios. <laughs> I was all the computers always. Yeah. Right. Uh, did that with ESO, Exxon okay. Australia and worked in a place called Longford down in, in Gippsland, which is where all the oil and gas from Bass Strait comes on shore and gets gets right. stabilised. And so we worked in the OSG, the offshore support group. So we looked after all the radio system telemetry, bearer systems, the computer systems, mm. the all the cool bits of electronics that are on oil rigs, uh, including this really cool little box that detected the ripple on top of a DC current that fed the platinum ingots on the legs of the platforms. 
which stopped the, the legs being eaten by the seawater, right? So it would put this voltage through yep. these huge anodes and the, the platinum would slowly rust, ionize, break, break off, float through the seawater right. and then attach to the legs, which were the cathode. A useful thing to know. Very useful. The problem is international law. So if that ripple becomes higher than a certain percentage of the base, yes. it is legally classified as AC, not DC. Okay. And at that point, you can't have divers in the water. Right. So they have cathodic protection ripple detectors. But these cathodic protection ripple detectors... Well, good on you for saying that. <laughs> so... We used to build the little boxes that you use to calibrate the cathodic protection ripple detection system. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So, so they're the kind of cool things I did as an apprentice. And, uh, and we learned this stuff from, and this profoundly influenced my entire life. Yes. I was surrounded by a bunch of the highest paid, most amazingly knowledgeable experts in their individual fields. Mm. There was about eight of them, and they were all at the top of their game, most of them 55-plus yes. up to sort of 70. And these people you could ask any question of, and they wouldn't just tell you the answer. They'd tell you a story to go along with it, and they'd give example. It was just the most wonderful experience. And I realised after a while, this is important for my knowledge management journey, mm. I realised after a while that I was learning as much in the lunchroom with these old guys mm. as I was in my formal training at trade school. And I was really aware that this isn't right. I'm supposed to go to school to learn. Why am I getting so much here? Not just getting, but I'm remembering what I'm learning from them. Mm. I'm not remembering it, the school stuff as well as I'm remembering that. So I started, you know, from a very young age, you know, 18, 19 years old, I'm asking myself, I'm watching my own brain going, oh, this is influencing me in a different way than secondary mm. school did. I, I did. I went up to year twelve. I did maths, A, maths, B, physics, chem. So I, I wasn't your average apprentice. The, yeah. A lot of the other apprentices were fifteen years old, three years younger than me, mm. and had no idea of physics or or yeah. just the world in general. They were just young, so it wasn't hard to excel in the trades. But at the same time, I learnt as much about the learning process in my apprenticeship as mm. I did about the topic matter, mm. the subject matter of computers and radios. Yeah. And I carried that with me. So as I've gone on my journey through life and, and ended up in IT and sales and medical waste and shipping and finance and I've, you know, I've been all over the place, uh, I ended up in the Yarra Valley water. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before what's the difference between information and knowledge management. Uh, that's actually what got me into this. So... I was at uh, Yarra Valley Water and there was this massive fire at Roxburgh Waste Treatment Plant. Mm -hmm. If you imagine this big yard with concrete walls and those big bales, you know how they get all the cardboard and they compress oh, yes, yes. into those big bales, yep. yeah? So they're like 12 foot by 12 foot by cubed, right? Yes. They're huge. And some of them are caught on fire. And you can imagine the energy density in one of those mm. things, right? So there's a couple and they're lighting each other just through proximity and there's huge water cannons on the corner of these concrete walls that are trying to get it out. 
they ended up with 30 appliances there, sorry, 30 fire trucks there mm. to help put out this fire and very quickly ran out of water. There, there was a 300 mil main and it was just sucked dry by these yes. by the cannons and by the things. So anyway, John, who's the senior engineer, he jumps in his car, lights flashing, races across town and he finds this shutoff valve to the Roxborough Park High Level, which is that hill right near, uh, in, you know, the one, you know, the one you come over when you're coming down the Hume and you come over the hill and there's Melbourne laid out in front of you. That's, that's the high level. And so there's high pressure up there. Mm. And the idea was to open this shutoff valve and let that pressure down into the low level where, so they could put the fire out. And that's exactly what he did. So mm. he's telling us this story the next day at his retirement party. And I said, John, how did you find that valve? Because there's a shutoff valve. You don't use them, right? They're, they're, they're shut. They're, they, they keep the zones apart, the different pressure levels. And he said, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, if you've got a map. And I did. I had this big A0 map. So we got the map out and laid down on the table. He says, right, here's the high level. Here's the low level. Here's the, the main. Here's the shutoff valve. Uh, it's right near this corner. There's a, there used to be an old factory on the corner there. I just went there, I went to the corner, saw the tree, went 45 degrees out from the tree with a metal detector and we found it through the bitumen. So he had no prior knowledge specifically where it was? No. So he, well, yep. yeah, hold on. Hmm? He found it and they dug through the bitumen, four inches of bitumen, and here's the valve head. Because the problem with these valves, because they're not used, they get, right. they get you know, bitumen yep. in because they're, yep. they're, never, they're never maintained. So he finds it. Anyway, I said, John... How do you know about the tree? And he goes, oh, that tree was a sapling when I put the valve in 40 years ago. I said, that tree's not in the database, is it? And he pulled the finger out on me. And he points at me and he says, we put that tree on the field card. But you IT guys decided it wasn't important. Right. And I just, it was that epiphany moment where I yep. went, oh my gosh, knowledge and information aren't the same thing. Mm. you can have information without context you cannot have knowledge without context mm. that's what swung me around three months later i was doing a master's degree i don't have an undergraduate i never mm. went to university i mm. just went straight into a master's degree i was a bit scared it was very scary going into an academic yeah world but you know we talked about going broad mm. so that helped so I got in there and at the start of every week, I was the stupidest one in the class. And by the end of the week, some miracle of some book I wrote, uh, read 16 years ago, or some conversation I had on a plane going to yes. Toronto or whatever would go, would be the unlocking moment. And I go, oh no, this isn't hard. This is just this. Yes. So by the end of every week, I was the smartest person in the class. And I ended up averaging high distinctions and mm. totally surprising myself because I thought I was really going to struggle with a master's. How old were you when you started your master's? 33. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't even something like in your 20s. It was something no, older. No, no. Now, one of the things you mentioned before is about a learning journey. And I think when most people think learning, they think, oh, that's when I go and sit my bottom down in a classroom with a teacher to learn. And I think one of the things I know about you, and I think that story reveals in some of the things you've been saying, is that for you, learning is the acquisition of knowledge and the sharing of knowledge in a, the most broadest sense. And you are willing to do that yourself, not because somebody set a curriculum or a teacher said that was what was needed. You have some 
qualities and traits. And I'm wondering what you think those qualities and traits are that lead you to be this way. Good question. I've asked myself that a lot. Oh, well, I mean, it's, curiosity is definitely at the top there. Curiosity is down there. I really need to know. And I had a, I had a, is my mum listening to this? I had a, <laughs> I had a hidey hole when I was growing up above my, you know, my wardrobe. Mm. And it was where all the things I'd pulled apart and couldn't put back together again went. Oh, so you're a bit of an experimenter too. Including my auntie's cassette radio and yes. a bunch of other things. I was constantly pulling stuff apart. I was electrocuting myself. I was setting things on fire. I was just wanted to know how the world worked. And when I read um, Benjamin Franklin's book, there was a moment in that where he was at a party. Mm. I don't know if you've heard this story. He was no. at a party and a small tornado right. came across the property. And everyone's like, oh, quick, grab everything, go inside. No, Benjamin... And I can't remember what he grabbed. I think it was a bunch of ribbons or something. But he grabbed a handful of ribbons, raced for the nearest horse, jumps on and chases it, mm. and then is riding beside it and letting the ribbons go in it to watch what would happen. And I'm like, my brother. I'm like, <laughs> yes, I would be on the horse right yeah, next to yeah. you trying to work out how this thing works. That's me in a nutshell. I love that. And... I've found people over my life and some of them really good friends who just don't have that drive, that mm. need to understand. And it's made my life so easy. Mm. Like so many of the things I do, it's just like, this is going to be fun. <laughs> and it's, so it's never, learning is never work for me, mm. but the same thing learning is never collecting information either. Mm. You, you know, those beautiful glass, balls that you buy like a paperweight and they've got all these different colors and shapes inside them yes. and and so when people when i talk to people they, they think learning is remembering mm. but for me learning is picking up that ball which is the thing that you're looking at mm. and then slowly rotating it and gaining an understanding of how all the bits fit together and where are the mm. patterns and what you can see from each side because it mm. changes as you rotate it right and for me, that's wicked problems. That's complexity. That's the life we yes. live in. It's yes. not linear. It's not simple. It's definitely not reductionist. And so if you delight in spinning those things around, and this isn't new. When I was a kid, mm. I remember being at my nan's house, mm. probably six years old. Yeah. And we had tea mugs, but she had Pyrex ones. Oh, yeah. How contemporary. And I remember standing next to the table, right? And she she had a cup of tea and she poured the milk in and every synapse in my brain lit up as I watched the cauliflowers of milk travel through the tea in slow motion and, and mix and swirl and then bump into and hit the other one and they're all interconnected in their movements. Mm. And for me, that's all of life. That's every project I've ever managed. That's... Mm every problem I've solved is tea pouring into milk. Yeah. It's such a weird thing. Now, am I like this because I saw that that day and it resonated yeah. or did I see it because I'm like this? I, I don't know. Well, I think it, it also highlights that often people might think knowledge is words or there might be a diagram, but I think 
what we're hearing is here there's knowledge in metaphor there's knowledge in a an experience that you saw going on that maybe had no language that went with it that had no physics description but for you it had a way of you maybe understanding fluid dynamics in water without anybody telling you about fluid dynamics in water and it didn't have to have that language with it it didn't have to come from a physics class and it maybe it stuck with you look what happens in the world it's all connected <laughs> indeed and um, one of the things i'm planning on doing is uh, uh, when i post this podcast in the newsletter is alerting people to Patrick Lambie's personal KM little assessment tool. And in that he has six different kinds of personality styles that people might have for personal knowledge management. And I didn't come to the podcast conversation today remembering what all of them were, but I do remember one of them is connector. And so I would encourage people listening to this podcast who might be thinking, and I'm going to ask Stuart in a moment to enlighten us on what you think some of the good practices are for an individual to do about personal KM. But as you're listening to Stuart and I talk, we possibly have particular ways of uh, thinking and seeing knowledge that might not be an exact uh, replica for you and so looking at these different km styles can be really quite helpful because not everybody has to be a connector to appreciate knowledge they may have and do you remember what the other five are not off the top of my head uh, I, I do remember them yeah. and I, i've i've used They're them all with c i'm pretty sure yeah patrick is one of my heroes of the faith you know he's yeah, he's yeah. just the most wonderful person yeah. we actually had him speak at knowledge management leadership forum last month mm. and and just to see him he's He's done a, a new book on knowledge auditing. So if your idea of knowledge is words, like you just said, then when you hear the term knowledge audit, <laughs> unless you're an accountant, you mm -hmm. may think, oh, that's where we're going to write down all the words. But no, he, he was very emphatic that, no, 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 you, yes, we want to write the words down, but, but that's not the goal. We need to get that out of the way and good so that we can focus on the real knowledge, which is the stuff you can't write down. Mm. Yeah. So what we call it tacit knowledge. Yes. So explicit knowledge is knowledge that's written down. Tacit knowledge is that stuff inside you that just tells you what to do. So I have explicit knowledge of mm. my mum's scone recipe mm. and that's written down. I have a copy of it. Yeah. Do you think I can make those scones? They come out like little hard rocks. You could knock out a kangaroo with one, right? And I've learned a little bit. So I, I actually spent some time with mum and she was making them and, and I, I realized that you don't twist the cutter as you push it through the dough. Okay. Okay. You push it straight down. That's important. So it's little things like that. Well, that's mm. not written down anywhere. Mm. You've got well, to sit there and watch her make them. And... Or maybe somebody's pushing it down afterwards and you're like, oh, she told me this good thing. I'm going to write it in the margins. Mm. And I often think knowledge management or that stuff is, it's what's written in the margins. In the margins. That, somebody's I love in, that. that makes the difference. That's beautiful. I, I often, uh, so I work for the Country Fire Authority and I'm a volunteer firefighter. And I did that on purpose to learn what knowledge firefighters actually need to know how can I do my job as knowledge manager of CFA with 55,000 volunteers and how are we going to retain that knowledge over the next 10, 15 yeah. years? If I don't know what that knowledge is. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm not an expert. I, I have trouble holding the hose for someone else to put the fire out, you know, yeah. but I know enough about the process about incident management and control, command and control and communications and all those, all those little bits that we don't think about. We just think about the guy holding the hose, right? Yeah. I know enough to be able to 
to think about how we connect people, how we retain knowledge, how we transfer it, how we modify it and grow mm. it over time. And that's all I need to know. I, that's the important part for me. But when I talk about knowledge, I don't believe their words. By the way, there's a third one. There's, a, there's an Indian author, and I apologize, I've forgotten his name, but he wrote a wonderful book on knowledge management. And he, he talks about there being explicit, tacit, and implicit. Yes. Now, I love that distinction. Yeah. Yes. So implicit too. knowledge is stuff in your head. Yeah. But it, it is remembered information. Mm. It's the stuff you can write. So yeah. me remembering your phone number, that's implicit knowledge, mm. right? Now, if, if I knew you really well and I called you all the time, you know, back in the day before iPhones, yes, it may also be tacit knowledge because I would use the shape of the keys to remember your number, not the numbers themselves. Mm. Does that make sense? Or even and the dial I, tone. Like, or the dial sometimes tone. you look and think, something wasn't right there. Oh, that's because I put a three in instead of a two. Yep. I, I used one of the worst security things ever designed, which is the logon screen for the internet banking for ING. Right. And the reason it's so terrible is because to stop computers hacking it, they present a keypad to put your pin in, but they change where the numbers are on the keypad every time. Oh, so you can't use muscle memory. No muscle memory. Wow. Making a huge assumption that everybody is holding their pin in implicit memory, hmm. not in tacit memory. Hmm. It messes me up so yeah. bad. It, it's really terrible. Showing, the, and it, yeah. but what a great test, hmm. showing that I am holding my pin in tacit memory, yes. not in implicit. Yes. Uh, and I, I, I have to do this really hard thing, very, hmm. very similar to my 17-year-old uh, daughter learning to drive, right. where she's thinking about, Where's the blinker again? When do I put that on? She's she's having to think through because it's an implicit, right? Mm. It's she's got to think through every step and what I'm doing, and and of course the whole goal of learning to drive is to move that into tacit, mm. and you're not really considered a safe driver until it's all in tacit, yeah. until you yeah. can naturally have a conversation with your mother-in-law and notice that that kangaroo's just jumped out in front of you. Yes. Yeah. And break safely while paying attention, right? That's all tacit. And so as a knowledge manager, we need to manage both. So a lot of knowledge managers that I've worked with, they mm. really focus on the information side mm. and, and they have this Which belief. is the explicit stuff that can be put into yeah. words and um, stored in databases in the world. Correct. And it's all based on this idea that if you give people the right information, they'll always make a good decision. Mm. I just don't have the data for that. Mm. I, I, that's not my experience. Mm. There's another bit to it. They've, that number one, they've got to be humble in their thinking and yeah. they've got to be looking for external information in the first place, not mm. just shooting from the hip. They've got to have a trust that time they're going to invest in that knowledge. And by the way, that can be external knowledge that, you know, Wikipedia or, or, or mm. Google, that can be your network, mm. your social group. Yeah, yeah. ask a friend. Know who or, to ask. Yeah, Got to phone a friend. Be, that's how I'm going to get my knowledge. Phone a friend. Phone a friend. And, and that's CFA. CFA is all yep. phone a friend all the way down. Yeah. Or it can be your personal knowledge management. So you've written something down. You've I use Evernote. I know you're a OneNote fan. And yeah. we, we have very similar approaches to managing our personal knowledge because I don't know when that's going to be useful. Mm. I have thousands of stored articles and Indeed, papers, journal too. papers and things. 
but I have no idea if they're ever going to become yes. uh, things. But I know that if I'm going to make a decision, I'm going to. Well, I'm speaking at the AFAC conference at the end of this month, and I'm putting together a talk, and I'm refactoring the talk right now yes. for a certain audience type. So I'm going through, and I'm doing searches through my personal knowledge base for for stuff that's going to give me stories. It's going to give me mm. different ideas. It's going to give me a different approach. And so I'm laying that stuff down as part mm. of my everyday work life. And I do it in every part. You know, I do a little yes. bit of artwork. And one of the ways I practice that is by pulling up pictures on my phone and then trying to sketch them. Yes. Um, because a lot of the times I sketch after my wife's yes. gone to bed and it's 11.30 at night. And, yes. and it's the idea of sketching out in, in the public is not really suitable. So at any time of any day or night, I'm on the internet, I'm on Instagram, I'm doing something, talking to somebody and I see something that is a potential thing I can sketch. Mm. I pause my life and I quickly save that mm. in the folder in Google Photos Yes, where I have all my things to sketch. Yes. And I've managed to make that tacit. So what I mean by that is that process of stopping momentarily to do that no longer breaks my pattern of thought mm. Mm. i don't need to stop do that and then yes. go right where was i what, what was i doing and so personal knowledge management can be about that it can mm. be about creating those little habits that automatically put stuff away because you already know where it's going to go you know yes. you're going to tag it everything else and it's so automated it's so so tacit that you yes. you can just continue what you were doing mm. and you didn't lose anything yeah but Oh my gosh, I've looked at it the other day. I've got some three and a half thousand images in that folder now. Yes. I'm shocked. You just don't realize how many you're putting yeah. away when it's one every couple of days, you know, but it well, adds up. I, well, one of the reasons why I like that tacit, implicit and explicit is that it helped me personally to understand a work situation that I was in because sometimes people say knowledge is power. And that like the more that you have it or who's holding on to it, it can be used in certain ways. So this understanding that the knowledge that I might hold about something could be parts and tacit, parts implicit and parts explicit. So a couple of thoughts come up there. Stuff that I might have captured from the world that was explicit and I put in my journals or my, my one notebook, some of those parts were, oh, that article and that article, yeah, they're both there, but that made me think of something was a crossover. So I wrote myself a little note or I drew myself a little image and I captured that as a kind of a cross-fertilization of two bits of knowledge. So my, my collection and my knowledge base has more than just my own little internet of things in the world. It has these other things where I've kind of thought about it and sometimes I don't even go back to it it's almost like it seeps into me and goes down into some kind of tacit level that yes. will express itself at I don't know when and there's something going on in the world and it's like this is what I think about capability where, hang on, where did I learn that view about capability oh it's and then I can come sometimes come back and go Yes, that's right, because I read that article from that field of knowledge, and there was an article over here from business architecture, and then there was a musing I did in a drawing. Oh, I can see the, see the seed of where that thought came from, and I see you smiling and laughing while I'm telling this. So, so you've just landed right on my definition of knowledge, so, yes. because knowledge isn't stuff remembered. It's not additional, mm. right? It, it interacts and what knowledge is, is the mm. emergent outcome mm. of all that, not the additive outcome. 
Oh, nice. More about remembering. Nice. Does that make sense? Mm. Um, you, you mentioned that knowledge is power. Mm. Um, the old Francis Bacon saying, and I, I believe that. I just think it's incomplete. I sometimes think it's better to think of it as fuel. Yeah, well, that's one way to say it. I, I, I like to finish his sentence. Mm-hmm. Knowledge is power as long as blackmail is acceptable in your culture. Oh, provocative. So for me, knowledge, if, if you want to take a scientific view of it, yeah, mm-hmm. you think about it. what is power? Mm-hmm. Power is work done over time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you yeah. withhold knowledge, mm-hmm. how much work is being done? Mm-hmm. So there is zero power because mm-hmm. there was no work done over mm-hmm. any time frame. So withholding knowledge gives political leverage. Mm. But you've got to believe that political leverage is power. Mm. Often all that helps you do is veto things. You yes. can't create with it. Right? And so I hate the knowledge is power quote. I have the quote on mm. my desktop because I like everyone that comes and visits me at work to look over my shoulder and see it there. Yes. And it's a quote by Dale Carnegie. He says, mm. Knowledge isn't power until it's applied. I like that. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. So for me, what is knowledge? This is important. It's important because everything else springs from it. Mm. Your actions, what you believe knowledge is, changes the way you collect it, the way you apply it, the way you manage it, the way you see it in others, Mm. the way you respect it. And, And for me, knowledge is not stuff. It's a capability. So mm-hmm. it's the ability of both individuals and teams, okay? Because you can have knowledge spread across a group of people. Mm. So knowledge, the ability, the capability of teams or individuals to process the available knowledge and information to create high-value decisions and outcomes, mm. right? For whatever that is. Mm. I know Patrick Lamb doesn't like value. He thinks it's too vague. But I actually use value mm. in this definition because it's vague. Because what's value mm. for you is different for me, and that's okay. Yeah. And what so, is, what knowledge, yeah. what capability, yes, is required yes. is different. Yeah. Well, I can make that link there too. In the Self Unlimited collection, we have the value exchange cards, which represent a lot of value elements. And some of those value elements can come from knowledge, can be created from knowledge, can be a field to knowledge, can be a response to knowledge, can be a manifestation of different knowledge. For example, you know, somebody they might value is bragging rights. What's bragging rights? That's a view that other people know something about me from a status point of view. So knowledge kind of leads and and connects into so many things and I thought I'd make a connection here that I'll just reflect back to you. So self-unlimited, the framework that I came up, that is a form of knowledge. And I came up with a framework to hold these concepts together of that having a workscape and taking responsibility for your workscape and of the seven responsibilities. The first one is reign, as in I'm the sovereign. So as a sovereign, I hold knowledge of what my sovereignty position is over my workscape and out of that flows knowledge about, well, these are the values and the beliefs that I hold true that are going to help shape what I choose to do and not do in my workscape. And then that leads into the rules, which are the kind of my policies and procedures that I choose to live by, which leads to the relationships of which I may share knowledge and I might source knowledge. It might lead to the resources I have, some of which will be knowledge, some which has got a knowledge embedded in them, some of the 
there might be a means to create knowledge. It leads to the renewal, which is what do I know and what am I knowing and how can I change and shift that? It leads to reputation, which is a view of the knowledge others have of me, which also is connected to the, the last one, which is revenue. And so knowledge can be thought of and sometimes as a currency. And, and revenue is just one form of currency that the world has decided. And I, it's a revenue because it's an R. But, you know, when people are working as a job inside organizations getting a wage, that's a kind of currency. And there's often a sense that the exchanges, I brought my expertise, as in my knowledge and all of the forms that it has of what I can say, who I'm connected to, uh, the skills that I have, and with my time and gave that to an organization, as you said, to create some value. And in exchange, they gave me back money. Well, in fact, there probably there's other things I want back from that exchange than just money. But yeah. But you created value to get the money, right? You didn't yes. hand over some of your knowledge. You didn't yes. sell the knowledge. Yeah. You you used your knowledge to create yes. value. I love yeah. that. That's beautiful. That's, and, if, and if Helen that's walked away, book. you'd have somebody else. So it's not like Helen is just an empty vessel where you got just what Helen knows. And that's, I think, one of the things uh, to a story that I will share is that I had this experience and it was very valuable for me to understand that I can hold tacit, explicit and implicit knowledge on something. So I was about 22 years of age working in an organization and I had been made redundant. And for two years, I had been running, and you'll love this, a Novell DOS network operating system, which kind of says something about the time in the world that I was doing this. Now, I'm picturing it. I'm right there. <laughs> I, had, right I, I had done a year at a, a polytechnic or like a TAFE in Australia, learning about business computing. And in that, I learned how to run a Novell DOS operating system. But you can learn stuff in a classroom. And then the reality of actually running a system with all the different challenges that can happen over a two-year period on the job was what had happened before this point of I was made redundant. And I remember that a person who was going to be taking over in a, um, a senior person thought, oh, I know something about computers. Helen could sit down on a Tuesday afternoon and teach me how to run this Novell DOS operating system. And I remember there was a part of me thinking, hang on, this was a subject I did in a year-long course, and I've been running this system for two years, having the lived experience, having to consult with support people at a time, and, and we're talking in the 1990s, which there often weren't manuals for these kinds of systems around. There was definitely not Wikipedia and internet and online stuff you could look up. So I had acquired an awful lot of tacit knowledge in me. Now, some of that was explicit, uh, sorry, implicit, in that if you asked me something, I could give you an answer to the question. Yeah, and some one, of it was two, explicit in that I had written down some instructions that were in a book. So, of course, I'm teaching this person some things from the explicit form that's written down in my notes. But as I'm explaining some of the things, I was thinking... Yes, but then they might come across the situation. I didn't write that down. I don't know how I would write that down. And so there was a very much an appreciation for me that sometimes in the conversation, they would have questions and I couldn't answer them. And I had this tension where it's like, but I'm not stupid. I know this. I've been mm -hmm. running this for two years, but I can't answer this question. Why can't I answer this question? Or that they would look at me and think, oh, you're withholding that because you've been made redundant and you don't want to share and you're being unwilling to share. And it took an emotional toll on me until I came to appreciate those parts of the knowledge are tacit. And tacit knowledge, you have it 
but you can't speak it easily. And there's been different moments in my time with technical things like uh, SQL statements, which is a technical thing. I know how to write an SQL statement, put it in front of me, I'll write it. Ask me to tell you how to write an SQL statement or in a particular context, what SQL statement to write. I would not be able to articulate it. That doesn't mean I don't know how to do it. It means that knowledge is so tacit. It hasn't been moved to an implicit form where I could put language on it or an example to share it. It's still there, but I have to just do it. It's like, no, no, just give it to me and I'll do it, which again has sometimes put me in a situation where people are kind of like, no, 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 teach me how to do it. It's like, no, no, I can't teach you how to do it, but don't you know? Yes, I do know how to do it, but I mean, you could watch me do it and maybe I could think aloud in the moment while I'm doing it, which may be the closest way to share it. But that knowledge is down at the tacit level and it needs a a time and effort to transfer it to the implicit level. And I don't necessarily have that or haven't done that. Absolutely. I love that story. I heard heard one time that little sort of metaphor of of information and implicit knowledge being like, Imagine a fate. You you know that you have the big like a Moomba sort of thing happening, yeah. and you're sitting a on a festival type um, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. you're sitting on Swanson Street, and you got your kids with you, and you're watching yeah. these big uh, things go past, and marching bands, and dancing girls, and yes. and people on skates, and everything that goes past, right? And so there's a beginning. You see the band come around the corner, mm. and and it comes down. And if you had a piece of paper, you could write down. You know, first was a marching band, then there was the Queen of Moomba. Yes. And then the King of Moomba and then the dancing girls and you know whatever. So eventually the, the last one goes past, you know, the the final marching band and, and it disappears around the other corner down to the river mm. and that's the end of your fate. But tacit knowledge is it, it, the feeling is that tacit knowledge is like going all the way to the front of the parade and all the way to the back of the parade and knowing everything about the parade. Right. But it's not. Tacit knowledge is like sitting in a helicopter, looking down on the city mm. and seeing it winding through the streets all at once from the beginning to the end. You see it all simultaneously. Mm. And what people are asking you to do is to write down the experience of sitting on the side of the street. Oh, I like that. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. So it's not that you're wrong you're withholding or anything mm. like that, but you, you're seeing the whole thing. So I'm actually pretty good at this. I, mm. I'm pretty good at describing this. The problem is I lose 90% of my audience because it starts with there's this grid of streets, right? Mm. And there's all these buildings in between the streets. And and they're like, I'm asking about a parade. What what are you what are you talking yeah. about grids for? You know? And they're like, No, 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 go with me. Just stay with me yeah. for a second. Yeah. Let me describe the context. Yeah. And then I can describe how the parade fits in, and now you'll you'll understand that it actually it's not just going past you; it it exists as a thing, yes. like a caterpillar. And I, yeah, I lose about ninety percent. Well, I <laughs> so, think it's, it, it says to that sometimes the really powerful ways that I find I can convey an idea to somebody to share some knowledge that I have is to put it in some kind of metaphor, which is this idea of. You'll already know something about something that's kind of connected in your brain in some way. And if I find a metaphor, even an analogy that kind of somehow connects to that, first of all, I'm appreciating that you're not a blank slate who knows nothing and I'm just going to upload information into you. I'm recognizing you probably know some things that I can tap into, but it's kind of like, how do I find a way 
to know that, or maybe I do have knowledge of that. And, I, and one of the things that I've learned over time is that well, something you know about the curse of knowledge, that there can be a point where you don't know what you don't know, or you don't actually know what you've forgotten that you know, because you've been doing something for so long, like you two teaching your daughter to drive. There's a point where an adult goes to teach somebody else and you have to stop and think, hang on what's it like to be a novice driver now, now what do I do when I get in the car because it's so tacit we've never had to make it implicit or explicit yeah. and it's just yeah. stuck in there and that your point you have to kind of stop and think right I need to slow myself down and this speaks to another I think key practice for personal knowledge management is the ability to reflect to, mm. to take yourself offline and to stop and go what am I knowing now of these things Yes, it might form into sort of a process or it might form into a story or it might hold together in some kind of framework of there's a three of these and a two of these and this is how they kind of hang together. And we, we frame things like that. It's, it's something that we're so commonly familiar with. We can undervalue because we can't see it and we can't shape it. And so the ability to sit back and go, hang on, let me just not wrote down what I think I know and maybe find some words to put on it, find an image to put it, and maybe test it out, sharing it with other people. And the more that you do that, that you can find a flow where a couple of things happen. You are actually able to help create value for other people because you can now share that knowledge is mobile. It can leave you and go out in the world. Mm -hmm. A second benefit is you can see it. It's like I, I see that I have this now as something to offer. And so your estimation of yourself can go up. And also oh, when I'm contemplating jobs I might go for or collaborations I might get involved in, you can have a level of confidence. I know some stuff. I could contribute in this way. I've got a story of something I did in the past, or I've got an idea, got no proof of a story I did in the past, but I've got some ideas I can connect. I love that. That's so well put. I mean, we, we all have that saying of if you, if you want to learn something fast, teach somebody else. Mm, yeah. There's so much truth in that saying. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's um, a classic way to actually move your knowledge from tacit to implicit. You have to start thinking, so what would I tell a novice people? And what where, where do you start? What's the thing that comes before the thing that you don't know? And what's the background mm -hmm. I need to provide? Yeah. yeah, spot on. And for those listening, if, if you've never heard of the curse of knowledge, what that is, is the inability for you to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else who knows something you don't know or doesn't know something you do know. The way they mm. test this in, in universities is they show a video to young children. Mm. And in the video, Big Bird comes on screen yes. right. Uh, Big Bird's here for Elmer's birthday and he's got a, a cake. So is Big Bird a he or she? They've got a cake. Big Bird walks across, opens the fridge, puts the cake in the fridge, mm. closes the door, exits stage right. Next minute, Cookie Monster walks onto the screen. He's got an ice cream cake. So he walks over to the fridge, opens it up. There's no room. So he takes Big Bird's cake, puts it in the cupboard, and then puts his ice cream cake in the fridge. Close the door, exit stage right. It's party time! Big Bird enters stage right, freeze frame. Mm. Big Bird's come to get the birthday cake. What's he going to do now? Mm. And most kids under seven say he's going to get the birthday cake out of the cupboard because they can't put themselves in Big Bird's mm. head and realise Big Bird doesn't yeah. know the cookie monster moved the cake. Yes. 
right? Uh, from six or seven upwards, mm. you then go, oh, no, Big Bird's going to go to the fridge, right? Because yes. that's where he thinks. Mm. That's where he knows the cake is. And so the, that's nice and simple when we say, right, seven, I'm yeah. good, I'm eight, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not like that. And I, I've run into, you know, 40-year-old CEOs mm. who fall for the curse of knowledge because the situation is complex enough that they mm. can't imagine mm. it, they can't simulate it in their head. Yeah. Yeah. And so they run into the curse of knowledge problem. Yes. And and so it's something we should all be aware of. I'm so glad mm. you mentioned it. Part of personal knowledge management is obscured by this terrible Western idea that we need more, 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 mm. more is good. And so this idea is that if you have more knowledge, you'll be uh, more skillful. Mm. You've heard that, right? That's mm. a, yeah. I mean, education is yeah. based it's on that. a very pervasive idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not true. There's a podcaster who has a whole podcast about learning stuff in no time flat. Mm. And he he's amazing. He learns new languages in like a week. He's he's really incredible. You can do that. If you do a good course or you you know, good training, mm. you, you can learn eighty percent of something. Yeah. You know, we, we do that. We, we, if you're gonna be a firefighter, you do a couple of weeks training and you're mm. ready to get on the back of a truck. The question I have is if you're a firefighter and you're out there in the bush, do you want the new guy that just did the couple of weeks training course? Or do you want the 50 year old guy who's been doing this since he was 16? Because what experience gives you, uh, and we know so much more about this now that neuroscience mm. and fMRI scanning and all this sort of stuff, is the brain is a pattern matching machine. Mm. And so what that experience gives you is this amazing ability to know what not to do. Mm. But not just that. There's a great story of a firefighter uh, who, a chief, uh, we, we, here a chief is in charge of the whole agency. In America, a chief is like the local captain. Right, right. okay. So the fire chief takes his men into this house fire. It's a small kitchen fire mm. and they go in, they're standing in the hallway and they're sort of throwing some water into the kitchen. And it's just, something's not right. Mm. Just, can't explain it there's nothing there and there happened to be a researcher there the day that this mm. happened he's out the front watching what's going on and uh next minute they're all backing out the front door and he's like look i just want to pause out something's not feeling right i just want to regroup see what you're all thinking and as he was saying that the entire floor of the house collapsed into the basement which was fully involved right wow. where they're standing he was interviewed by the researcher afterwards they looked at the video they checked out what was happening. There was not, there was nothing there. There was nothing to suggest that this was more than a kitchen fire, mm. but something in the old chief's head mm. was firing an alarm. I don't know what's wrong, but something's not normal. That's mm. experience. It's knowing that something's breaking a pattern here. Mm. Something is leaving me with that funny feeling in my gut. Yeah. That's not right. Sometimes we call that intuition. So for me, knowledge, it's not just about the training bit, the, mm. the, the easy bit up front. Yeah. It's how do you build this awareness through thousands of scenarios and stories and ideas that where you look at something, you go, I'm just going to back off the accelerator. That bush mm. is a little bit close. And if a kid comes out from behind yeah. it and you're not thinking this, that's implicit. Mm. This is tacit. Mm. The, the, the distance to the bush to the yeah. side of the road has automatically translated to your foot lifting off the accelerator mm. Mm. while you're having the conversation about curse of knowledge to uh, your good yeah. friend in the seat next to you. And I think one of the important things too is that some people might think, oh, so that's about 
a sum of knowledge that was somehow buried under layers and he couldn't necessarily access. So it was intuition. I would invite people to think if you even if you're in a, a space where you know nothing, where you have no experience, you can equally be insightful by seeing something that the experienced people aren't seeing and that they've kind of got blind spots. And so having a beginner's mindset, if you are knowledgeable, kind of going back to what is it to think as if I set my assumptions aside about what I know about the world, because some of that experience becomes in patterns, hard-baked assumptions and prejudices and things that reinforce privilege. But even for people who are novice, who might think, I know nothing, there's knowledge that can emerge in a situation from things that you look and think, hang on, but why is that? And why is that? And rather than thinking, oh, I shouldn't ask those questions. I know nothing. It might be, no, no, no. There's something that's causing my attention to be raised with no other basis than I'm being curious and letting my attention, my situational awareness be a bit more open to things rather than thinking I have to have prior knowledge to them. Yeah, it's a big issue in Asian cultures where it's shameful not to know. Mm. And so they won't ask questions. It's Mm. a real problem. And we have a little bit of that in the fire services too, because it's so important to know. Mm. You you never want to look stupid. Your reputation is important. But uh, that actually happened to me, that situation. So when I was doing my master's degree, Mm. one of the classes wasn't available at the University of South Australia. So I did that class for six months at the University of Melbourne, Mm. which is an amazing experience. And so I'm third year Mm. in my master's degree and I show up to the university face-to-face and uh, we're in this classroom and the, the lecturer says, tell us something about yourself that might be surprising to everyone in the room and so me being the naive idiot i am i said today is the first day i've ever sat in a university that didn't go down well people pay a lot of money to study at at melbourne university Mm. if you've done a master's degree you're expecting there to be very Mm. well off educated people sitting next to you so one person in particular who was the ceo of a publishing company took exception to me wow. and spent wow. the whole six months cutting me off, putting me down, mm. shutting me out. Being me being me, I'm, I'm just an apprentice, right? Mm. So, And I still call myself an apprentice because I never want to leave that, that learning zone. So I would ask these questions. And whenever I asked one of these questions, you'd hear her go, oh. So anyway, we get to the end of the year and they were having a get-together at the Chinese restaurant in the city. And I wasn't invited, but one of the other guys who I'd made friends with, he invited me. So I got to go along with everyone. And we're coming to the end of the meal. And she said, can I talk to you for a minute? Mm. I said, sure. She said, no, 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 over here. So she took me over to the toilets. Mm. And there was like a bamboo screen. Mm. I'm like, here we go. So she says, I don't know whether you noticed, but I've had had a problem with you studying with us. I said, yeah, I may have picked up on that a little bit. She said, I just wanted to apologize to you because your questions were so stupid and out of left field and totally unrelated to what we're learning that you were driving me nuts. But about a month and a half ago, you asked a question that was so far out of left field that the answer the professor gave gave me an entirely new insight, which I never would have got if you hadn't have asked that question that way. So since then, 
That has happened with almost every question you've asked. And it struck me that maybe your different viewpoint, your different background, mm. gives you a different level of insight than the rest of us have. Yeah. And I wanted to thank you for that. Wow. So, How amazing that she actually apologised. But also insightful from the point of view of that we, what judgments we make about other people, we assume knowledge that we effects are no facts are in evidence. And even just knowledge. being aware of that because we then kind of go, oh, I know what's going on here. When in fact, actually, I think this is another area of knowledge and personal knowledge. So I want to think, actually, I have no truth. I shouldn't act as if that knowledge is truth. I should act as if that knowledge is a hypothesis and saying, I'm hypothesizing that this is what's going on here. And I hold myself open to actually, well, I can kind of feel like, but I know it. It's like, no, no, no. What I have kind of confidence is I've formed a hypothesis. That's as much confidence as I can have. And I keep asking questions and I keep being open to see if my hypothesis is true or not. And But I keep an openness because confirmation bias could kick in. There's another aspect that can be challenging to think about what you know about stuff because maybe my hypothesis needs to be rejected and challenged. And I think there's something about holding it as a hypothesis that maybe makes it a bit easier for us to put that aside. But if we're stuck with, I know this as if I've got truth, I've got the truth in the world, I know what Stuart was thinking and how he was behaving, gets people in these entrenched positions. And that's why I love you so much because when we talk, I can just talk. I can just shoot the breeze. I can think of ideas. I can say, what about this? And I know you'll go with me. Mm. But so many people, I'm constantly thinking, what are they going to assume based on this? Mm. What weird places is their brain going to go when I bring this topic up? Or this well, how does this fit with their current worldview? And if it doesn't, then I'm going to be judged. Co correction because, and yeah, all those yeah, things. But yeah. you seem to be free of that. How do you do that? You... You're not welded to anything. It's so freeing. It's lovely. I think there's a point where I started to learn about this different way of knowing and thinking. And just to give it a philosophical term, it's using abductive logic rather than deductive and inductive. So I'm not going to explain that on the podcast. And if somebody's listening, you might use those words to do your own little knowledge scavenging and journey. But appreciating that there is different ways of knowing about something and and holding things differently and being able to then say this thing of knowing is actually a hypothesis it's one of those kinds of things and therefore to treat it this way gave me a bit of an insight to well keep doing that and see how it works oh well, it's been very helpful it's meant I haven't had to hold this emotional drama with people that hasn't put me in conflicting relationships and it, at a point you're kind of like well, who would hold on this truth to something that puts you in such a contentious, conflicting form? It's like, this thing I'm doing seems to be working. Let me keep doing more of it. And so I think oh, there's, a, there's been a bit of a, a recognition, grabbing a concept that may have come from some formal knowledge, taking the time to figure out how I might apply this, working a bit of a kind of an experiment and trying it out, how it works for me. And then as I'm finding that it's working for me, making a bit more of a regular habit and pattern in what I do. And so I've become very conscious too in terms of, I think reading lots of books has expanded my vocabulary from a childhood. And so where people might think, oh, look at you being a show off, knowing all these big words. But I think there's something refining around 
there are words, different words mean different things. So trying to take the effort to find the right word and understand it's not just about wordsmithing, it's about the concept behind it. So this is way, oh, I know what's going on or I'm making sense of what's going on. To refine that to actually, I suspect this is what's going on or I believe this is what's going on. And so just changing that verb to actually if I believe it, then that sort of says something about, yeah, you could take that to the bank. But if I suspect it, I'm leaving room with myself and with others. There's a question mark. And, I, and I'm not setting myself up for people to think, oh, if Helen believes it, it must be true. So, oh, but if Helen says she suspects that or I surmise that's what's going on. So just being very mindful of the choice of the verb that I would use to describe something. And one that I, I hear a lot, particularly with women They'll say in something in their language, I guess. And I think you're not actually guessing, but we've become so accustomed that to actually take a stronger position to say, I know something, somehow would feel as an affront to the people around us. So we soften it and kind of say, I guess. And I think, no, 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 reserve guess for when you are truly guessing something and find another word, be mindful and replace it with another word. If you believe it, own it. And sometimes when I'm talking with somebody, I will actually say something and then I'll follow it up with a statement like, and this is a judgment and I will own that. It's like, I'm, I'm actually going to be at the other end of the spectrum of claiming I am absolutely clear. I'm making a judgment on a situation here. I may not be right in my judgment. I possibly am not even in a role that I'm entitled to make a judgment, but I'm also putting it on the table that I'll own the fact that I am making a judgment. So if somebody wants to accuse me of you've judged that wrong, well, then I'm taking ownership if they want to accuse me. Yeah, that's brave and vulnerable. I Indeed, like and I think there's something around that and that's sort of that personal KM. I think there's often an, an emotional aspect that's not necessarily considered in terms of what you're knowing and how you're knowing it and maybe whether that's about a humility or an empathy or, a, as you said, a bravery in, in how we think about knowledge and how our relationship to knowledge is. Yeah, well, I think there's a flip side of that coin. I think so, some people experience shame for not knowing. Yes, yes. And that's that's really bad. That's that's mm. not good in emergency services. Sometimes they'll use shame as a teaching thing. Right. To teach you how important it was that you needed to know that. Mm. And that's short-term gain for long-term pain. It's mm -hmm. uh, it's a really dangerous way to get a point across. So I'm I'm very sensitive to that. Mm. Shame and taboos mm. uh, have caused more knowledge problems in more lives and more organizations than I mm can even conceive counting just those two knowledge sins mm. uh, something to be avoided and so I'm quite pragmatic in yeah. my personal walk and my corporate life mm. in looking for those things that will influence where the knowledge is flowing mm. and when it's not mm. and I'm particularly sensitive to when it's not mm. and I, I get accused of being negative sometimes mm. and I, I'm not being negative I'm pointing out the problem and I had a situation with my boss the other day who's very much about positive language and everything she's mm. very very good at it very good at it and I'd written this uh, paragraph in a, in a major report and I was saying that we have these problems mm. and we're going to overcome them mm. and so what she did is she made me flip each dot point into the positive of that as in this is the opportunity we're going to address Correct. So that does two things. 
and I did it. I'm here to serve. First of all, it takes away the urgency to fix the problem because now it's not a problem. It's just, it's just one of the myriad of mm. opportunities we've got to improve. But secondly, I have a logic issue. Yes. And uh, for those of you listening at home, imagine me holding up a business card here in front of me and I'm describing a little five millimeter circle of things we're not doing well. Mm. And so when I instead use language that describes the positive mm. of that, I'm not describing everything outside that circle anymore. I'm describing another five mil circle at the other end of the business card. Mm. That is very different from the whole of the business card except for that little circle. Mm. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So logically, negatives work. Now, I have a Jewish background, so yeah, I have a bit of negative, mm. you know, because that's part of their language, the way their language works, their music works. Yes. You know, it's even linked with their, the, you know, using minor keys and everything. It's, mm. it's, uh, it's a way of accurately describing. Like you said, mm. what's the best way I can accurately describe this? Mm. I hated people using big words. You know, growing up on a dairy farm, doing an apprenticeship, I couldn't stand all these academic tosses. Now I'm one of them using these big words. So I hate that about myself. But at the same time, it's just I'm trying to be efficient and accurate. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. So I can describe this concept to you with two words or half a page. Mm. And if I try the half a page, I get the glaze glazing yes. over. Yes. So I'm going to use the two words. Yes. And then let you ask me if you don't understand what that means. Mm. I do think that is a challenge when people say, let's put something in plain English as if let's reduce it to as if we've only got a vocabulary of 600 words. And I think English, I, right. I can't remember an exact figure, but English has many, many, many descriptive words. I mean, it's imported it from different languages. And I think, well, we have them at our disposal. But when people go, oh, but Helen, it's semantics. And I go, actually, you're correct. I knew you meant that as a negative, but you are correct because semantics in the field of linguistics is actually about the meaning. And there is quite a big of a difference between I suspect something and I believe something. I mean, yeah. if we were in a court situation, there would be lawyers in, in the case for the prosecution and the witness would be very different between, you know, I can only say I suspect something, not I believe something. Whereas people might go, oh, but you're just being picky about the words. Well, yes, I am, because I believe there's an appropriate word for the situation. And it can be an opportunity where people might think, oh, but you're holding me at a distance because you used a word I didn't know. And you and I are the kind of people like, really? I'd like to know what the meaning of that word is rather than I feel excluded. But sometimes I think language can be seen as an exclusionary factor with that emotional part. Like you use that to exclude me. And I think... I didn't. My intention was not that. There is an open invitation if you didn't know what that was. And I hope the way I show up and my personality and the approach in whatever situation we were in, people would have felt safe to go, so tell me what that means. And even words that we more think might mean the same, like quality. And you can have people all talking a conversation about quality and you have this feeling, I don't think we're all talking about the same thing. But then you don't want to go, hang on, what does quality mean? Because then you think, I'm a professional person. They think I'm stupid if I don't know what quality means. So I've learned a trick. And this actually leads us into, as we start to think closing here, Stuart, about some tips and tricks about how we deal with knowledge. And so the one that I would say to people is that if you have a situation like that, I say, so what does quality mean to you? 
we all may have a different lens, like from a kaleidoscope or to your point with the glass ball, with the different colors. I may be looking at it from a different side. And so what I'm wanting to understand is with whatever you're thinking about in your context, what does quality mean to you? That is the more practical thing of the knowledge I want to get on. Not that we need to both go to the dictionary, agree it's on this and somehow align to that. Right. So, yes, absolutely. So we know that, you know, Newton was an important step on our journey to understanding how physics works. Yes. But he's essentially wrong and Einstein is more correct. So we don't want to over-rely on Newton, you know, because in high energy, high, high gravity situations, it gets wrong real quick. And so in the same way, we had that in knowledge management. Back in the mm. 1920s, there was a, a gentleman who studied communications and he built these models which led to the internet. They led to so many uh, amazing scientific breakthroughs. But the concept itself come with baggage. That concept is a model of communications as pertaining to a sender, mm. a receiver, mm. and a carrier. And that allowed us to build Ethernet security protocols and yes. all sorts of things and how libraries work and so much come from that. But that's not how it works. We, we all talk with each other. We, we've got people listening to us right now, mm. and some of them are hearing what we're saying and making one connection somebody's making another connection we're all on different levels we've all got different backgrounds it's messy and mm. it's multi-directional multi-phasic it's mm. it's all over the place and so we need to get away from this sender and receiver part and i mm. people often say uh ask me about knowledge management in terms of oh what do we want the senders to do what we want what do we want the receivers to do what are the carrier mediums what software do we use you know yes. the most, most popular question but my question is how do you tend the garden mm. it's a whole bunch of plants and they're all, all different paradigm. the seeds of one are attracting an insect which is actually pollinating another and it's and it's an ecosystem right mm. so as a knowledge manager i'm less inclined to think about the the senders and receivers i'm more thinking about how could i influence this conversation or this mm. learning journey mm. there's the word again of that these people are having at the start of this project or at this you know delivery point mm. or, or or whatever it is so that they maybe come together they share a couple of standards of what their understandings are they mm. they patch up any bits where they're sort of passing each other in the night and more importantly that, that maybe they they learn something about their own point of view mm. and that's something that communications theory doesn't cater for Mm. I've got something, I'm sending it to you, you are receiving it. Yeah. There's no concept of in this interactive process, I changed. Mm. And so one of my favorite knowledge management quotes isn't a knowledge management quote, but it's Theodore Zeldin. And he said, the very best conversations are those where both people enter willing to walk away as different individuals nice. so that you, you go into a situation mm. with a humility that i am going to be possibly changed by mm. this and any time whether it's personal whether it's corporate mm. whether it's through development like uh, gladys kimboy wilson over in africa uh the work she's doing there with young girls and education and everything just incredible knowledge management mm. 
because she's got this wonderful humility and and mm. she's as likely to laugh at something than to give you some piece of wisdom you know she's mm. uh, she she gets it she really yes. gets it and so it's about the discussion the conversation and where we might end up together rather than mm. where i need you to be right mm. now and i guess that comes down to what we talked about before with ambiguity i think one of the greatest things you can do is to learn to be okay with not knowing mm. yeah don't need to know everything just have yeah. some ideas enough to play around so that you can learn some more and to know what the quality of your knowing is. So one of the quotes I like, and I can't recall who it was, it's, but many people think they're thinking when they're merely rearranging their prejudices. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that. So that this notion that people fantastic. feel like, if it went on, I was doing thinking. And it's like, if you're thinking the same thing and revisiting the same thing and not allowing that possibility of, and um, maybe I've got it wrong, or maybe... It's not that it's it was wrong when I learned it, but maybe it's no longer relevant for here and now. Maybe in this present moment, I need to be able to let that go and take on some new knowledge, whether that's to cull some things out. And I like that notion from a garden, because if you thought from a tending point of view, it's like, what seeds might I plant for knowledge that would grow in the future? There's not, I might not get an immediate harvest. What things might I want to prune or cull back because it's a time for autumn and that there's some things I might need to let go and, and stop knowing or just to let decompose. And, and so I think that's a lovely imagery for us to close on in terms of your personal knowledge management, if you started to think about that notion of a garden and what if knowledge was the thing that you were tending and cultivating and what might you do for them? So if you'll let me finish on that that little negative point. Yes. That, that little five mil circle. Bring us home with that. So that little five millimeter circle of what you don't do with knowledge is similar in a gardening context to what's happening right now in the almond industry. Okay. So in California, They've created these massive tens of thousands of acres of almond trees. They are complete monocultures. Wow. They are serviced by bees and pollinated by bees. Mm. And there's reports that up to 80% of the bees that are sent to these farms to pollinate the almond trees die. Wow. Because it's not an ecosystem. It's a monoculture. No diversity. No diversity whatsoever. It's almond trees for as far as you can see. And that is the exact thing that our corporate systems try and create so they can control, Mm. so they can measure, so they can calculate value. Mm. And yet they create corporate monocultures Mm. that destroy knowledge, destroy understanding, destroy Mm. growth, just terrible for resilience. Mm. And so they end up spending millions on redundancy and on on lawyers and on everything else to save them from the things they have created themselves. Mm. So in your personal life, in your corporate life, don't create monocultures. Mm. Diversity, I love it. Stuart, this was the most joyous chat. Thanks for being part of it with me. It's always fun. I love the, the questions you ask that always challenge me. You see, you seem to see my feet five millimeter holes, and I really appreciate that part you play in my life. Pleasure. Thanks again. Workscapes are changing everywhere. For more goodness to change your workscape, visit www.beselfunlimited.com 